This is the Gender Justice Brief, a podcast of gender justice. We fight for gender equity by breaking down legal, structural, and cultural barriers and expanding protections. We want to see all people thrive, regardless of their gender, gender expression, and sexual orientation. In 2023, the Minnesota Senate passed a bill giving Minnesotans the opportunity to vote on a constitutional amendment guaranteeing equal rights no matter someone's race, color, creed, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity or expression, age, disability, ancestry, or national origin. In other words, a State Equal Rights Amendment, or ERA. But the bill stalled in the House and the amendment never went before voters. This year, legislative leaders in both chambers have vowed to bring the ERA forward on the first day of the legislative session. In fact, the language in the bill the legislature will consider would provide some of the strongest equality protections of any state ERA. If these efforts succeed, Minnesota will continue being a leader, a North Star, if you will, in setting the bar for aligning our laws and constitution with our state's values of equity, non-discrimination, and reproductive autonomy. And that's what we're going to talk about today on the Gender Justice Brief Podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Megan Peterson. I'm the executive director of Gender Justice. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm really excited to be talking with my esteemed colleague, Jess Braverman, our legal director, about a piece of work that has taken a lot of our time, energy, and passion over the last several months. And that is the process of reviewing and revising the language for an equal rights amendment to the Minnesota state constitution. So we're going to dig in on what the little bit about the history of the state ERA, why we need one now, why we feel so enthusiastic and excited about the language we have put forward. And yeah, hopefully just introduce folks to to what might be possible here and pass in the 2024 session. So before we dig in, Jess, do you want to say hello, maybe explain your journey of ERA skeptic to ERA champion? Hi, everyone. I'm Jess Braverman. I'm the legal director at Gender Justice. I had a journey from ERA skeptic to ERA champion. I am... we've. There, there's new, there's language for the ERA that I'm really excited about that I think has the ability to really make a fantastic change in Minnesota, stuff we can really use in our lawsuits, we can really use in persuading lawmakers to do or not do certain things. So I was skeptical of the ERA and now I'm a convert. Would you say your skepticism stemmed from the place that we actually have a lot of great protections already in Minnesota at a constitutional level. And so that was some of the question was, what's the value add of amending our constitution at this time? And can you just talk a little bit about what those protections look like? Yeah, I'm such an unlikely person to be the legal director because I have so little faith in the law and the courts and what it can do. I think it's super limited. I feel like the law is a tool for harm reduction. And beyond that, it's not really good for much else. And so part of my skepticism comes from that. So we pass the ERA and then we bring it to the courts and the courts are just going to do what they want, no matter what it says. And how is that helpful? I The former language also was fairly limited and it wasn't explicit about what's included. What does it mean to not discriminate based on sex, right? It was really limited. 
And it's already illegal to discriminate based on sex in Minnesota. So I thought well, the court could see this and think, well, I'm not supposed to do anything different. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. So it wouldn't make any change. But the way the language is now, it does expressly strengthen the protections we have, make sure additional things are protected, insulates us. If the Minnesota court changes and decides we don't want to protect anything that's not explicitly word for word in the Minnesota Constitution, but it insulates us. Because one thing that happens is the Supreme Court ruling about the federal constitution doesn't directly impact the, the Minnesota state constitution. But judges see how the Supreme Court judges make their rulings and start to follow them. So if the Supreme Court starts to say precedent doesn't matter, you can see other judges saying precedent doesn't matter. And if the Supreme Court says, let's like do this originalist thing where we make up history and talk about how fantastic it was and that th this is what abortion was like in the past, like then state court judges say, that's what I'll do too. And so we really do need to be vigilant that even when rulings don't directly, like they're not directly about the Minnesota Constitution, they can really have an impact down the line. Thank you. Listeners might be like, okay, what are you talking about? What is the Equal Rights Amendment or past language and current language? So we're just going to take a step back and provide a little bit more context. But as you can tell, we are deep in the weeds on this subject and really excited about it. I have a lot of thoughts about it. So to back way up, part of the history of the Equal Rights Amendment is that the federal Equal Rights Amendment passed in 1972 through Congress, but it didn't meet the 1982 deadline for ratification by the number of states that needed to ratify it. And so it essentially stalled out. And there is a new movement now that states, I think Virginia was the last state that was the last one needed to meet the threshold. But because it was past the deadline had been established originally, there's this open question and a lot of advocacy around whether or not it counts, whether it can be possible to recognize the amendment as being ratified. And so with the federal constitutional amendment question really in this limbo, there has been a lot of focus on how do we use state constitutions and state courts to accomplish the same thing. And Minnesota has had a pretty good history overall around laws and court decisions really protecting equality and protecting things like abortion rights, for instance. But we have not passed a state level equal rights amendment despite there being many years of advocacy and efforts to make that happen. And last session in uh, legislative session in 2023, the Senate did pass an, a state ERA that was modeled on Nevada's language, which uh, was adopted in 2022. The House did not pass it in 2023. Our Minnesota State House did not pass it. And so it stalled out here for the time being. And following the legislative session ending, Gender Justice and some other partners got pulled into some conversations about, okay, what needs to happen to make this really get across the finish line here? How do we, how do we move this forward in 2024? And so we looked at the language from Nevada. We looked at what was happening across the country, even in relatively short windows, like even in the past year around attacks on people's reproductive rights, on transgender people's rights. And we just said, I think that we could make this language stronger and we could really set a new high bar for equal rights amendments and make Minnesota a leader. 
So with that, Jess, I'm going to turn it to you. I'm going to stop talking and turn it to you to just say a little bit about what does this new, what does this new language include and what will it accomplish? Yeah, so the ERA language, we went for a really inclusive language. There were lots of stakeholders involved in the discussions to make sure that folks weren't being left out. If my main practice, let's say, is sex discrimination, reproductive rights, trans rights, right? But we also made sure there were other folks included, folks who do disability rights work, folks who do focus on race discrimination. We wanted to make sure there were a lot of different voices at the lawyer's table. I was part of the like lawyery language crafting. That does not mean that only lawyers are part of this process, right? So it includes race, color, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, disability. There's a lot of different things included. It also is really specific that it includes reproductive freedom. Um, Sex discrimination is a pretty large category of discrimination, and we believe that it includes discrimination based on things like pregnancy and pregnancy outcomes. And so we thought it was important to explicitly put that in there, right, to explicitly mention reproductive freedom, pregnancy outcomes in the bill, because some courts are really hostile to the idea that sex discrimination includes pregnancy related, let's say, discrimination. There's actual case law where basically in the this is from the 70s where there's comprehensive benefits plans and the employer leaves out pregnancy related benefits from the comprehensive plan. And people are like, okay, that's clearly sex discrimination. You're only leaving out the benefits for people who reproduce. Like this is ridiculous. And the court's like, no, just because like women use this doesn't mean it's sex discrimination. And it was just this bizarre court ruling that still has some traction today. Thankfully, Minnesota rejected that like right away. Our courts were like, that's not true in Minnesota. I don't know what you're doing over there, Supreme Court. But we thought it was important to be explicit just so that we don't end up with that mess over here. So the it's really inclusive. It's really explicit. It includes protections for transgender people as well. Yeah, we're really proud of it. Thanks. Yeah. One thing that I always like to point to when telling the story of how you can pass an equal rights amendment and courts can still interpret that in a number of ways that seem very counter to maybe the original intent. And that is that Texas has had an equal rights amendment for a long time, and yet they have banned abortion and a number of other terrible practices that impact people on the basis of sex. And to Jess's earlier point about you, you can amend the Constitution and then ultimately the way the law works, judges are going to interpret it. And I think the being as specific as possible hopefully narrows the amount of interpretation judges can do to interpret things out of the protections. We're hoping it just narrows the scope of where they can be creative (laughs) about not including people or care that people may need. What else, uh, what are some of the other kind of key components of the new language? One of the things that I'm excited about is that we included, structured the language in a way that would allow for protections that are, are more intersectional in nature. So can you just talk a little bit about what is intersectionality in the context of constitutional law and how, what is the particular language that may help us accomplish that? Yeah, the the issue, the law is like really slow 
it tends to be really behind. And sometimes it tends to be, believe it or not, it tends to be problematic, Megan. So sometimes someone's discriminated, let's say at work, and the court says, you say you're fired because you're a woman, but like all these other women have women have jobs like you weren't fired because you were a woman and the person and then the court's like you say you were fired because you're black but all these other black people have jobs and the person is basically saying like i was discriminated against because i'm a black woman right yes other women have jobs but they're white women yes other black people have jobs are black men like this employer has an issue with black women and he treat and the court the basically the case the judges the courts didn't really do well with these kinds of intersectional claims. There's some wonky case law on the issue. And some courts just really weren't equipped to handle it. We wanted to make sure that it's clear that people can be discriminated against because they meet a number of criteria. It might just not be one thing. And so this law is inclusive of that concept. It ensures that it's not like you you have to prove it's one specific thing. Sometimes there's a lot of different issues that go into the reason someone's discriminated against. Sometimes it's because of their intersectional identity, and this is inclusive of that as well. Great. Yeah, it would be really, it'd be really exciting to have that, that avenue open, more clearly open. Another piece of the language that I think is interesting is near the end, and it's where we say that this, this new amendment does not limit the state's ability to pass laws or have policies or practices that are designed towards reducing discrimination or increasing opportunity. And that is really in reaction to federal level efforts to chip away at programs like affirmative action. I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that component of the new amendment language. Yeah, what we see a lot is you pass an anti-discrimination law and the, the, a more conservative court is really excited to apply it to programs that are meant to f- correct discrimination. So you have a law that says schools forever were not in- admitting Jewish people. They weren't admitting women. They weren't admitting black people. So you have like expressly, right? It wasn't a secret. It was they were saying like, we have a Jewish quota, right? So you want to fix that over time. And so you what you do is you create programs to make sure that folks who are historically excluded are included because it's not just a matter of you open the door and people come flooding in. You actually have to do some work to fix the historic discrimination. And so you have what gets called affirmative action programs. They're meant to correct the imbalances that have been caused by really overt policies, really overt racist, sexist, anti-Jewish, or, you know, whatever it may be, policies. And the Supreme Court recently, for a while, they upheld those, you know, those kinds of um, practices. But the Supreme Court recently in the Harvard case found that schools, it, it was, this was particularly about schools, that like schools could no longer consider race in itself as a pro for admitting students. And what I mean by that is you can't basically use that as a weight. Like you can't say we want, we don't, we've historically excluded black students. We haven't had enough and we really want to get more in. So we're going to look at student races just to make sure we're actually like fixing these problems we had in the court said you can't do that anymore. Admissions, depending on how you read the ruling, you could say the court said admissions have to be completely race blind. I think a, a, Better reading might be that admissions can consider race as long as it's like one of many factors that's being weighed the same, like diversity is diversity. 
but it really was intended to limit programs that are really important. Like it's take law schools, right? Like it is so important that people who become judges, right? Like gatekeepers to our fundamental rights have understand what it's like to be a black person in this society, understand what it's like to be a trans person, understand what it's like to be denied health care, right? It's important that they not see these as things that happen to other people, but things that affect them too. And if you limit, if if you don't do anything to encourage folks who've been like excluded, like expressly excluded and unwelcome from these spaces from applying, you're going to end up with a bench that's just old white men who've always been welcome in these spaces. And that's a problem. And that, I don't even think that's good for old white men. They may, maybe they like to be in charge. They like to be in power. But I, I truly think that having different people in these gatekeeping roles is extremely important and benefits all of us. And we have a provision in the ERA that basically says that it is okay to try to fix historic discrimination. If what if you have a policy in place, but the reason is because historically people are underrepresented because historically they've been overtly discriminated against. Yeah, it's okay to have that policy. Now, we can't overturn a Supreme Court ruling. That is what it is. But it encourages our judges not to take that any further, not to take what the Supreme Court did any further. And I would say, too, this is part of the point of why passing a state equal rights amendment in Minnesota is so important right now. It's a way for Minnesota to say, these are our values. That might be what's happening at the U.S. Supreme Court level, but we want to be crystal clear here that in our scope of influence, which is that for our state, this is what we want our constitution to say and the values we want reflected and embedded in it. And so I think that's, again, a lot of the desire to be explicit and specific comes out of that desire. The other thing that the new language does is try to be explicit and specific about the level of protections that the Equal Rights Amendment would afford. Can you talk a little bit about what, I mean, we refer to it as a strict scrutiny standard. What is that and how are we trying to incorporate that into this language? Yeah, so when the court is deciding whether certain laws or policies are constitutional, There's different levels of scrutiny that it applies when it's looking at those laws. There's what's called rational basis, which is I don't want to say it's a rubber stamp, right? But it's a rubber stamp where it's like the government can show some reason why they did this and that reason's valid and within their power will will uphold the law. On the other end of the spectrum is strict scrutiny where the court says if the government wants to do this, they better have a really good reason and the law better be like narrowly tailored to meet just that reason. And that's right now the highest level that you can get. And so we're asking that when there's discrimination based on these protected characteristics, that the court apply strict scrutiny and not rational basis and not what's called intermediate, that the court take that really seriously. If the government is going to do something and the result of that action is discriminatory, it better have a really good reason for doing it. That doesn't mean that it'll never be allowed to do it, but it has to really explain like this is why we're doing it and this is why it's narrowly tailored just to meet that really important reason we're not making this broader than it needs to be. And so we're explicitly putting that in there so the court doesn't try to wiggle out of giving the strongest protections. That being said, there's always the caveat of you can have strict scrutiny. I was talking with someone from the ACLU National who made a really great point, which is that race discrimination gets strict scrutiny, but has that solved our all of our problems no of course and, 
And within the framework of, okay, the, what, what courts can do is limited, what the law can do is limited, it at least gives us the best fighting chance to make the changes we think are important. And that just makes me think about the importance of not only having good laws and having strong constitutions, but also then using them, right? That will be a piece of this work, like big picture, is we worked at Gender Justice with um, partners and colleagues and allies to uh, look at the language and craft amendment language, and we're going to work hard to pass it through the legislature this year, and we will work hard to turn out a majority of voters who will vote in support of it. So it will be adopted and amended formally into the Constitution. But what comes after that is we have to use it. We have to bring cases and get decisions from judges that help interpret and really take full, make the law as meaningful as possible in people's lives. And an example of just even our own work that I can connect back to on that is the Dovi Gomez case, which in Ninth State Constitution, strict scrutiny level of protection for abortion in Minnesota. And yet, even after 1995, there were laws that were passed by the state legislature that were in violation of that standard, that were chipping away at access to abortion and carving out some people being able to get easy access to that care. And yet those laws went unchallenged, despite there being a standard that could have been applied. And there's a lot of reasons why that happens and or doesn't happen and assessments on what might be possible through the court and all that. And yet, to me, it's just a little bit of a reminder of how getting the law is one thing or getting the precedent or getting the amendment is one thing. But then you have to use it you have to make a point of actually uh, putting that law to work. Yeah, we've got to sue people. Yeah. So I'm going to take a moment and just read the new language from top to bottom. And it'll be online because it will be surely introduced in the state legislature again this year. And so the Minnesota Equal Rights language that we worked on is all persons shall be guaranteed equal rights under the laws of this state. The state shall not discriminate against any person in intent or effect on account of one or more of the following race, color, national origin, ancestry, disability, or sex, including but not limited to pregnancy outcomes and reproductive freedom, gender identity or gender expression, and sexual orientation. Any action by the state that denies an individual's equal rights shall be invalid unless, at a minimum, it is the least restrictive means of achieving a compelling governmental interest. There's that strict scrutiny standard. And then for the purposes of this section, reproductive freedom means making and effectuating decisions about all matters relating to one's own pregnancy or decision whether to become pregnant, including but not limited to prenatal care, miscarriage care, abortion care, childbirth, postpartum care, contraception, sterilization, infertility care, and lactation. For the purposes of this section, gender identity and gender expression includes making and effectuating decisions about gender-affirming care. And for the purposes of this section, state means any state, any agency, and any political subdivision thereof. So that's like a definitions section, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. 
This amendment is self-executing. This amendment does not limit or narrow existing rights in the Minnesota Constitution. Nothing in this section shall invalidate or prevent the adoption of any law, regulation, program practice, or benefit designed to prevent or remedy discrimination on the basis of characteristics listed in this section. So that last sentence is getting to that affirmative action intent. Jess, the definition section is definitely new. We're including that term reproductive freedom. And then we are taking some time and some space and words to define that. Can you just share a little bit about what went into that decision and its definition? Yeah, we've decided let's just take courts seriously when they say things. And (laughs) what the Supreme Court said in Dobbs is word abortion isn't in the Constitution. A lot of our fundamental rights aren't expressly in the Constitution, but if what they're saying is if it's not expressly in there, then you don't get it, then we will just put it all in there so that there's no confusion. And so we wanted to be really inclusive. This isn't an abortion amendment, right? It's about reproductive freedom. So people may choose to get pregnant, right, to have a child. And that's fantastic. This supports that as well. And so it's meant to be really all-encompassing, really broad, and really so we don't end up in a situation where the court says, I don't see contraception in here. It's like, yeah, you do. It's in there. <laughs> it's explicitly in there. And we left ourselves some space mm-hmm. in that it says, including but not limited to. So right. Urge other forms of right. care that develop in the future, and the court wishes to interpret those as also being included like they're not by swimming upstream to make that happen. Correct. But we don't want them to say, I don't know if this is in here. It's it's in there. It's in there. And this is meant to be looked at broadly. Like contraception is one of the the things that I think we foresee as facing some legal challenges federally in the future. I think they're building on Dobbs very much could be an effort to limit access to contraception. And so Let's just go ahead and and name it. No, reproductive freedom is protected in Minnesota and it includes contraception as well. All right. So maybe we talk just a little bit about what what comes next. What comes next is that the legislature needs to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. In Minnesota, the process for amending the Constitution is relatively straightforward. The bill only needs to pass through both chambers of the legislature, the House and the Senate. The governor does not need to sign it. When it passes through the House and the Senate, then it can go in front of the voters. And in order to be adopted, um, 50 percent plus one of people who vote, fill out a ballot overall, um, need to vote in the affirmative for the amendment. Um, The hitch in Minnesota is that if you vote, if you fill out a ballot and you just skip the question, you just are like, I don't want to vote on the Equal Rights Amendment. I don't know. I don't have an opinion. You are actually registering an opinion because not voting in Minnesota counts as a no vote. So we need 50 percent plus one of affirmative votes for the Equal Rights Amendment for it to be adopted. In other states that have passed Equal Rights Amendments more recently, That has been a pretty easy bar to clear. They generally start off with a lot of public support. And so far, polling, for instance, MinPost did polling near the end of last year on the Equal Rights Amendment showed just baseline. There's already a broad level of support. So we're quite confident that um, whenever this goes in front of Minnesota voters, 
we will be able to secure that threshold of support and amend our constitution. So watch out for more information as legislative session gets underway on February 12th. There is a big day of action on that first day of session. We will be joining our partners at the at ERA Minnesota, which is the volunteer-run coalition organization. It's really been dedicated for years and years now of making the ERA happen in Minnesota. And they're organizing a day one for ERA event at the Capitol on February 12th. And we will be there supporting that, welcoming legislators back, really sending the message of let's get this done this year. Let's get ready. Let's make sure that equality under the law is crystal clear and established in Minnesota. One of the things that I'm anticipating we're going to get questions about, Jess, and is very relevant for our work, is how is the ERA different from the Minnesota Human Rights Act? I think lots of folks know the Minnesota Human Rights Act. We were the first state to include, for instance, protections for gender identity in our anti-discrimination statute. And we've used the MHRA a lot and it ha have found it to be a very powerful tool for addressing discrimination in our state. What is the difference between the MHRA and an Equal Rights Amendment? The Minnesota Human Rights Act is it's really broad. It's a really broad anti-discrimination statute that prohibits discrimination in like education, in employment, in public accommodations. And it also prohibits uh, some forms of government discrimination in public services. We did use it. We, we've used it to sue the government for discrimination against, for example, like transgender people in, in prisons and that sort of thing. The Minnesota Human Rights Act has lengthy case law behind it because it, it's, it's very well used. It's well loved in Minnesota. It provides really strong protections. It allows for things like damages. So in other words, if I'm discriminated against and I'm harmed by that, I can get financial compensation. But it's mostly focused on conduct of private parties, not exclusively. There is a provision for government discrimination, but it's most commonly, I'd say, used in the employment context where people say my employer fired me because I'm black or because I or sexually harassed me, for example. This the ERA is a constitutional amendment. And what's important about constitutional amendments is that they trump statutes. And let's say the government, Minnesota government passed a law that we felt was discriminatory and it violated the Minnesota Human Rights Act. What you have then is one statute, like the discriminatory law that was passed up against another statute, which is the Minnesota Human Rights Act. And you have to somehow argue that the Minnesota Human Rights Act invalidates this other law. That's a really hard argument to make. There are avenues for making it, but it's not clear how it would turn out. If a law violates the Minnesota Constitution, that law cannot be enforced. The legislature doesn't have the power to pass unconstitutional laws and our police prosecutors, whoever does not do not have the power to enforce unconstitutional laws. And so it's really strong protections from government. The ERA is really strong protections from government discrimination, particularly from discriminatory laws. So it would be safe to say that it's really, it's like the biggest tool in the toolbox we have. It's the, it's, it is going the furthest we can as a state to create the highest level of protections for against discrimination and for equality. This is the big prize if we can get it. Correct. Yeah, this is much stronger 
So the Minnesota Human Rights Act is extremely strong. It's extremely useful. We use it all the time. But the Equal Rights Amendment protects us from discriminatory laws specifically, and that is huge, right? It's about how the government treats us, how our own government treats us, and that's really important. And so, yeah, this is this would be huge. It'd be really important, right? If the government tries to ban gender-affirming care, ban abortion, ban contraception, discriminate, you know, people based on race or sex, you know, saying discriminatory laws, we'd really need something like the ERA to fight against it. That's super helpful. Thank you. I just want to also acknowledge all of the wonderful partners that we worked with through our legal working group to develop this language. We had a, a, a diverse group of people working in various areas of the law and bringing different points of view and perspective. And so in addition to gender justice, we had folks from the ACLU of Minnesota and National Planned Parenthood Federation of America, Mid-Minnesota Legal Aid and their Minnesota Disability Law Center, three law school professors from the University of Minnesota Law in particular, their racial justice law clinic was represented, as well as Mitchell Hamlin Law, then a couple attorneys from the private bar, including a plaintiff's attorney from Gustafson, Gustafson Gleck and a partner from Lockridge, Grindle, and Nowen. So we're really grateful. Folks volunteered their time, their expertise, their thoughtfulness to participating in a really thorough and intentional process to review this language and, and develop what I think we all agree will be the strongest language. It will set Minnesota ahead of of other states and really establishing strong protections uh, on the basis of all those characteristics we named earlier. We would be remiss to not mention also in this episode the wonderful authors in the House and Senate who are carrying the ERA forward this year. So in the House, that's Representative Kali Herr and Senator Mary Kunesh. And as I have heard Senator Kunesh say many times, third time should be a charm. She's passed the ERA twice already, once when she was in the House. And then last year in the Senate, and I think we're all feeling confident and optimistic that this will be the last time she needs to carry it in the legislature. All right. Any closing words? We would love to hear from our listeners and from our community. If people have questions about the Equal Rights Amendment, questions about any of the super nerdy, dorky language stuff we talked about here today and want us to uh, answer them in an upcoming episode. We would love to answer your questions. So please feel free to email us at info at genderjustice.us with any of your questions. Certainly once session is underway, I know we will have upcoming episodes on the ERA and we will definitely incorporate any questions you have or anything that we missed talking about. If you want to see the language, want to connect with opportunities to get involved, to support lobbying on behalf of the ERA. We'll have resources in our show notes. And also, I got to give a plug in again for the event on February 12th. And then the Unrestricted Minnesota Lobby Day is on March 7th. And we'll have a full agenda that we are lobbying on behalf of on that day with our coalition partners and community members. But the ERA is definitely on that list of things that the Unrestricted Minnesota Lobby Day will be advocating for on March 7th. Jess, any final words? No, I'm just so excited to be a part of this momentous amendment.
Yes, we're, I am excited for you to go out and just talk everyone else into being as enthusiastic of a champion for the Equal Rights Amendment as I know you are. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Gender Justice Brief. This show is produced by Gunter Yano and Audra Griegas. To keep up with our work in real time, be sure to check out the show notes for where to find us on the web, social media, and to sign up for text updates. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share to help us spread our message. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.